Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunrise. My name is Dan. I'm the worship director here, and it's good to be with you guys on this on this, on this great day. It's good to be gathered to, together as a church. Um, so today, I want to start things off. I actually have a new song that we want to teach you guys today. Um, it's been on my heart for a while to introduce to you guys. It's actually been a while, thing, I think, since we've introduced any new songs. So I feel like it was time. Uh, but this song has been on my heart, and... Uh, it's called My King Forever. And as I was thinking about it, praying about this song, um, it was interesting just the timing of, of life with, you know, the Queen of England and the, the new king over there and just royalty in general. Just I was kind of thinking about that and thinking about this song and just thinking about how royalty is just, you know, feels in that context just very, like, distant and far away, like um, like the king. Even, like, in Disney uh, movies, like, the king and the queen just are so far and, and they're like in a different life from us. Uh, but thinking about this song and the words, and, and when you think about scripture and Jesus being our king, it's completely different kind of king. He's intimate. He's close. He knows us so well. So I want to read, I want to read through the um, verses of this in the chorus that I'm going to teach to you guys. So uh, uh, Greg, you can even follow along with the lyrics as I read through it. But So these are the verses. You gave your life for mine, nailed to the cross, you crucified all my sin and shame. It was washed by your mercy. You are the treasure I find, my reason for living. So let my life become an offering to the one who is worthy. All praise to the Lord Most High. All praise to the one who saved my life. All praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven, my King forever. So I want to teach that to you guys. Why don't you guys stand with me? As, we, uh, as I teach you guys a little, at least the verse and the chorus, and then you'll catch on to the bridge later on. So here, so I'll sing this for you, and I'll have you guys sing it back with me, okay? Here we go. So the first verse. You gave your life for mine, nailed to the cross. You crucified all my sin and shame. It was washed by your mercy. Let's try that with me. You gave. Hey, you gave your life for mine. Nailed to the cross, you crucified all my sin and shame. It was washed by your mercy. Second verse, the same, same music, so go ahead and sing that with me. You are the treasure I find, my reason for living. So let my life become an offering to the one who is worthy. Now here's the chorus. So we got to get a little deep breath underneath because it's a little high. So here we go. All praise. All praise to the Lord most high. To the one who saved my life, all praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven, my King forever. Sing that with me. All praise to the Lord Most High. All praise to the one who saved my life. All praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven. worship. Oh, 
God, you are good. You are a good God. You are a kind God who has our, our best interests in mind. You do all things for our good. Sometimes it's hard to see that when circumstances of life come up and disappoint and hurt. But God, we know that you are always good. And even though life and people and circumstances may let us down, God, you don't let us down. You're always there for us to talk to, for us to pray with. And you're there to listen and to guide and to correct and to love. So God, thank you for being our king, for being the refuge we can run to in time of of need and time of celebration. Thank you that you are a close and intimate and loving king. We worship you today. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can take a seat. I spend all my days teaching kindergarten through second graders, so I'm... I can project my voice when I need to. But um, yeah, so all of the announcements will be on that QR code and you'll see things popping up on the screen behind me. But as I said, as we're entering fall, we do have some really fun things going on. This Wednesday, the youth group has their official kickoff, even though they've they've had some events throughout the summer. Um, So 6th through 12th graders, that's going to be Wednesday night here at the church. So come on out if you've been a part in the past or even if you haven't, or if you're a new sixth grader, come on out and check it out. Um, Also, one week from today is our official fall kickoff. And if you follow Sunrise on Facebook, um, you've seen some postings throughout the week just from different people talking about um, how, you know, they're blessed and their life is made better by serving here and just different, all sorts of different ways that you can get involved. Um, So next Sunday, there will be different, there will be people representing all sorts of different ministries, just telling about it, helping you find ways to get connected. And it's just going to be a great morning. So come back next Sunday morning and hear all about it. Um, Last but not least, if you live nearby, if you happen to be passing uh, by sunrise over the past week, you may have noticed there's been a little bit more activity. Uh, A few weeks ago, some of our staff here at Sunrise were approached by a small local Christian school, Imago Dei. Thank you. Had to make sure I said that, got that right. And they are looking for, eventually, they're going to have a home of their own for their school, but they don't yet. And so they were looking for a place where they could call home and actually have their school meet during the week. And when they saw our facility and they knew some about our church, they just thought it seemed like a great fit. And after a lot of conversations with the staff, a lot of prayer, um, they decided to move forward with that. So during the week, uh, the back half of the building is going to have school going on. And um, we just wanted you to be aware of that. Um, They use a unique model of teaching to just kind of reach kids who might otherwise fall through the cracks of a traditional school system. So if you have any questions, um, look for one of the directors, and they'd be happy to share more with you. But right now, you can take some time to share with anybody around you or just sprint across the sanctuary, and that is totally fine, too. We're going to take a few minutes to greet each other. We also have kids... Uh, ministries going on this morning. And if you didn't hear, this is like our official move up Sunday morning. So if you had a kid that used to be in Little Lambs, now they're in kindergarten, they get to move up this Sunday and start off sort of the unofficial new year. So take a moment, say hello to those around you, grab some coffee, and kids may head out the back doors. All right. Well, good morning. So I know I've only been here a couple of times before, but that was, um, I mean, that was a lot more, that was a lot quicker, people finding their seats. You guys are looking forward to after the service, aren't you? (laughs) 
to asking me uh, some questions. So today we are going to um, eventually, not eventually, but here in just a couple of minutes, going to be taking a look at uh, Luke chapter 15. Uh, verses 1 through 32. Uh, and again, uh, it won't take you know, forever and a day to get through that. But today I thought that I would, I would preach a message about sin, considering that we're going to be talking about who's going to be your next pastor here in the next hour or so. Um, and I thought I'd let you know a little bit about me, right, background-wise, uh, before we jumped into Luke chapter 15. And probably one of the most important things for you to know is that I grew up in a community that took sin seriously. Anybody else grew up in one of those communities? Right? Can I get a, can I get a woot-woot or a hand or anything like that? Okay, good. All right. Now, now, the problem was, in my community that grew up taking sin seriously, we took things that aren't actually sin seriously. Can I, can I get a witness about that? Okay? All right? So the sins that we took seriously that weren't actually sins were things like playing cards. Lord, have mercy. Not a sin, but it could lead to gambling. So no card playing. Can I get a witness? Dancing. Not a sin, but don't tell my grandfather that. God rest his soul. No, but, but dancing could lead to lewd, sensual movements. So no dancing. Now, most of you are thinking probably the next one, right? No drinking. Oh, no. No, no, no. In Dennis's upbringing, it was no frequenting establishments that sold liquor or alcohol. Right? So, so things that weren't even a sin to begin with, right? So, so, so this one was like a tertiary backup, right? Drunkenness is what the Bible condemns. Most people would say, then therefore drink. My upbringing was you don't even shop at the Kroger because the Kroger sells alcohol. Now, recently, in the last 10 years or so, this prohibition has been lifted by the church that I grew up in. Any guesses as to why? You can't buy groceries any longer. There's not a supermarket available that doesn't have some kind of a beer aisle, which, you know, most of my... Aunt Karen walks through like this. <laughs> the first church I served, Grace Baptist Church in Lima, um, actually had a provision in the bylaws, and it intrigued me so much, I wrote it down, and I've never forgotten it, and it said this was in the bylaws. The members of Grace Baptist Church shall abstain from the buying and selling of alcohol as a beverage. Now, if you can explain to me what that means, I'll give you $100. But so, so this, this was the thing. One of our, our deacons um, actually was a person who had the liberty to drink. And when he was confronted about this, Mark said, it's medicinal. <laughs> and when he was confronted by the other leadership, he was like, I'm a medical doctor. I'm prescribing it to myself. If you grew up in this area, right, so the Jenison, Hudsonville, sort of greater metropolitan area, what's the one day of the week that you weren't allowed to mow your lawn? Sunday. Yes, it was. Why? Not because that was a sin or not because Sunday was the Sabbath, but for some unknown reason, we take sin seriously, so we don't mow the lawn on Sunday. We also, many of you who grew up in the Reformed tradition, you didn't go out to eat on Sunday. Why? Because you were going to make other people work on Sunday. But that prohibition somehow didn't apply to grandma and mom, who would slave all Sunday early afternoon, feverishly making a dinner. In my years as a chaplain, I had many long conversations with a gentleman who, who was an elder of a certain Reformed denomination here in West Michigan, who extolled the virtues of bike riding on Sunday afternoon. But when I mentioned the fact that I had thrown the baseball with my young son on a Sunday afternoon, was ridiculed to scorn for working on the Sabbath. You see, here's the problem, folks. This is how legalism works. Legalism presents the veneer of taking sin seriously, but what it does is it ostracizes sinners, 
pacifies my own sin and protects not the gospel, but a legal code of my own making. This practice of taking sin seriously in this way, putting rules and regulations that were extra and extraneous to what the Bible actually prohibited, reminds many of us, if I interpret the nods and the laughs in this room, of our childhood, of our upbringing. But it might surprise some of us to know that this hedge building, this moat digging, this wall constructing, isn't something that's new over the last 150 years. No, it was something that was done by the religious leaders of Jesus' day just as much as it's done by good religious people today. The hedge that religious leaders would build around the, uh, around the, the law, the Torah, was called the Chumrah, and it was a moral code that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and their predecessors had written, the Talmud and the Mishnah, to tell them not what the Bible said or what the Scripture said or the Torah said or what the law said, but how they ought to interpret and to live that out. And what would happen, what happened in Jesus' day is that many prominent rabbis had gathered followings. You can think of them maybe like denominations. And, and believe it or not, in, in Jesus' day, there was actually places where you could have multiple denominations where a good solid golfer could hit three churches with one golf ball, maybe one that was more reformed in their thinking, or maybe one that was a little more open and progressive in their thinking, or one that maybe had more ancient sensibilities, or one that was maybe from a, a, a sort of a, a, a more uh, a progressive leaning form sensibility, or maybe someone who was more Baptistic or someone who was more Wesleyan. Are you getting what I'm saying, people? You see, Jesus grew up in a world that was not unlike our own in that we live in a world where when most people say that they take sin seriously, what they mean is, I'm building walls and I'm digging moats and I'm putting my finger in the eye of people who commit sins that I don't commit. But here's the issue. It doesn't mean that they don't commit sin. It just means that they don't commit that sin. You see, for the, for the Jews, for the religious leaders in Jesus' day, it, it wasn't just about protecting the law. It was very similar to our day. It was about protecting us, the insiders, the clean, the righteous from them, the outsiders, the dirty, the reprobate. I know, right? I should have chosen a message that wasn't so meddly. Right? A smart man would have, would have uh, uh, preached an encouraging message this morning. You see, most of the time, folks, when we, we say or we think we're taking sin seriously, we think that the walls that we're building show that we're, we're on God's side. And we're thinking his thoughts about things. But I wonder if those walls and moats and hedges are doing just the opposite in our life like they did the opposite in the life of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day. I can't speak for you, but I know it did in my life. In my life, the only thing that taking sin seriously, the way that I was taught to take sin seriously, did was it caused me to actually sin. It caused me to foster pride. It caused me to be unloving to the other. It caused me to protect and to nurture a sense of judgment in my own life and self-righteousness about those people out there that did that stuff. It caused me to repel the needy and to be unloving to those who were most broken and in need of Jesus' love. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a familiar passage where Jesus is confronted with religious leaders, with people like me, with people that take the Scripture seriously, with people who love God, with people who are concerned with piety, that are actually concerned with doing the right things. And we're going to see how He shows them to take sin seriously. 
All right, Luke chapter 15. I'm going to need need some help setting this up. So Luke chapter 15, there are three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. We're going to spend most of our time on the story of the lost sons today. But uh, help me here uh, just, just a little bit. This first story, the story of the lost sheep. How many sheep in this story? We're going to need, uh, Bible scholars unite. We're going to need you to. We're going to need some help here. Um, how many sheep uh, were lost in the story of the lost sheep? One. Okay. But how many sheep were found in the story of the lost sheep? Ninety nine for a total of. What? Amazing. Okay. Who is the hero in the story of the lost sheep? Who's the God figure here? The shepherd is the, is, is the God figure. So what happens to the one in the story of the lost sheep? The one does what? He wanders off, right? So kind of like a toddler um, in mire, right? If you're not watching all the time, right, they see something shiny. A toddler or my father, <laughs> right? We need one of those big, and Delmas is a big guy, right? 6'3", well over 200 pounds. We need a big sturdy harness for that fella, right? But it's like, so either, right, so... Um, um, you know, grandpas who struggle with ADHD or toddlers, kind of like that, right? The, the, the sheep wanders off, right? So there doesn't seem to be any overt disobedience. There doesn't seem to be anything. But it's someone who has been attracted, who has been caught, who has been lured away, who has wandered away from the group. And so when the shepherd realizes that the wanderer is gone, what does the shepherd do? He goes to look for him. And by going after the one, he necessarily leaves who? The 99. Now, you know, and, and right, so, so here, here's the thing, right? People that take sin seriously will normally stop at this point and be like, well, you know, what did he do? Did he have people that stayed with the, with the, with the 99? He probably had sheepdogs. He probably had them in the pen. He probably had all these kinds of things. Why? Because what are they concerned about? They're more concerned about the 99 than they are with the one, which isn't Jesus' point in the story. The story of the lost coin. What happens with the story of the, the lost coin? What, uh, who is the, who's the hero in, in, in the lost coin? Who's the God figure in the story of the lost coin? Oh, the woman, right? There's a woman who has, it says she has some coins. Now, this is really, really interesting here. Um, she has some coin, coins, and she loses how many coins? She loses one coin out of a set of coins. Now, hang on to that. I'm going to get back to that here in just a second, because I think... That's really important what kind of coin this is and what it represents. So she loses this coin that's near and dear to her, and what does she do? There's two things, and this might be, if you'll take a minute to glance at the passage, it'll come out, but she does two things. What does she do to try to find this coin? She lights a lamp, good, and then she sweeps the house. She lights a lamp, remember, no electricity, right? It's not like you're flipping on. I don't know if you're like me, right? But the power goes off for 30 seconds, and I just stand by the light switch and cry. <laughs> Please, Lord, what am I, how am I going to survive, right? Um, Lady doesn't do this. She lights a lamp, and presumably she takes that lamp all over the house, and she sweeps, and she sweeps, and she sweeps. And I know what you're thinking. Like, why would a coin be, right? Why would a small object, well, the text says that this actual, this particular coin is actually worth quite a bit of, of money. So it's not like she lost a quarter, but maybe it's like she lost a $200 bill or something like that. But, but, but more involved than that, many theologians look at the context of this and they think that Jesus was actually using something that was culturally significant to show the value of the coin for this woman because it wasn't the monetary value that she lost that was so significant to her. It was the fact that this coin was likely a part of the bride price that had been paid for her by her husband and her husband's family. In this part of the world, at this time, often what a presumed uh, groom or a a husband would do is that they would have coins, a significant amount of money, sort of sewn into a piece of cloth, and they would present this to their would-be bride. And many theologians think that it wasn't just something that had fallen out of her pocket, but it was one of these coins, a denarii specifically, that was worth a sizable amount of money in that day that had fallen out and had lost. So ladies, here's the thing. It wasn't that she had had a $20 bill that had fallen out of her her pocketbook. She had lost the stone out of her engagement ring. It had fallen out, and where was it? 
You see, the reality was is that this woman, who is the God figure in this second story, illustrates two things for us. It illustrates God's stooping and accommodation to find the lost that doesn't even know it's lost. (laughs) Imagine that, right? The coin doesn't know it's lost. The coin hasn't wandered off. The coin hasn't done anything rebellious. But the coin is nonetheless lost. And what does the woman i.e. God do in this situation, accommodates and gets down and looks for this thing. Why? Because it's precious. It matters. It's not just about a coin. It's about the story of love between this husband and this wife. The third story that we're going to be looking at mostly today um, is the story of of the lost sons. Um, And and, and this, again, falls after or in in conjunction with these first two stories that we've just seen. The lost sheep, who is the wanderer who, who, who wanders away. The lost coin that is lost and doesn't even know that it's lost. But these stories, all three, come in response to a question that is asked to Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, here, here's something you're, you're going to... Um, depending on how things go next week, something that you may get a full steady diet of over the next several years, and that is this. Most of the time when we think a verse or a passage is a throwaway verse in the Scripture, that tells us something significant about what God is trying to teach us through His written Word. And the same thing is here. Look at this. So it says, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... Okay? And again, in this, think us. Think you and me. Religious people. People that have been raised in the community. People that know the scriptures. People that take sin seriously. We're all gathered around Jesus. No, I'm sorry. Those are the people that are the outsiders. The next group is us. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those are us, um, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There are two types of people. Now, here's, here's what we're naturally tended to do, right? You and I, as we read the Scriptures, we naturally put ourselves in the place of the people that are down and out and oppressed. Why? Because everybody loves an underdog story. But let's be honest. If life is a five-step race, I had a four-and-a-half-step head start because of my parents. Right? In this passage, we are... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. The Greek here literally means they grumbled or they complained. They grumbled or they complained. This word is used twice in the entire New Testament. Luke uses it, and both times he uses it, he uses it of people like you and me. It's religious folks that were really agitated that Jesus was hanging out with those dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinners. How dare he, Jesus? How dare you? And so they mutter, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This brings us to the key question. The key question of of, of today's message. And that is this. The Pharisees, those religious people, those people that look the most like us in this setting, they are asking in their hearts, Jesus, why don't you take sin seriously? Jesus, why are you doing this? Right? Because we were always taught you don't go there. You don't do that thing. You keep yourself pure and you keep yourself chaste, right? You you do this, right? So I was raised in the context of you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't cuss, you don't chew, and you don't go with the girls that do. Right? So this is this is what we find, and 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 the the Pharisees, the religious folks, are looking. They're saying, "Jesus, you're eating with the wrong people. You're in the wrong spot. You're hanging out with the wrong kinds of folks." Why are you doing this? And in their mind, by Jesus, sitting with tax collectors and sinners, he was making himself unclean by association and therefore not taking sin seriously. We have to think about it from from their perspective, though, folks, right? Because there was all these religious rules and regulations and everything about temple worship in Israel at this time had to do with the fact that you needed to remain ceremonially clean, So if you sat down with someone that was unclean, if you sat down with someone who hadn't offered the appropriate sacrifices, if you sat down with someone who was um, actually a, a sinner and an outcast, right, 
it caused religious people to mutter because the minute that you would take the bowl from their hand into your own, you became unclean by association with the unclean. But here's the thing that Jesus was modeling, and here's something that I want you to catch. And again, this is a persistent teaching all throughout the New Testament. In the economy of the kingdom, as it relates to Jesus, it is not the unclean that contaminates the clean. It is the clean that sanctifies the unclean. Jesus wasn't made dirty by the sinners around him. Jesus redeemed the sinners around him by pressing into their space. And when they would touch even the hem of his garment, they were healed. And they would come to him with missing digits because of leprosy, they were restored. And when they were broken and lost in their sins like Nicodemus, when they saw him lifted up like the snake in the wilderness, they knew beyond their greatest fears that life as they knew it, was forever changed. You see, what Jesus is doing here in this passage, folks, is he is telling them, he is communicating how he is indeed taking sin seriously. The first thing that he does in this telling of the story of the lost sheep, he shows them how that he's taking sin so seriously. He takes sin so seriously that he'll leave the found to go searching for the wanderer. Some of you are probably thinking, Dennis, what, what, what will you challenge us to do if you come to be our pastor? I'm going to challenge you to get your rear ends out of this building and to not be so concerned with hanging out with the already initiated in your life and to go looking for the wanderer. The people that maybe have, have left the church, the people that have found the church in America wanting because they've not seen Jesus or not found him or experienced him in this place. I want us to go looking for the wanderer because that is how we take sin seriously. We take sin seriously not by building hedges or building walls or digging moats. We take sin seriously where we go out and we meet people where they are. Where we have long, hard conversations with people who wonder about why we Love them the way we do. I want to, I want to pastor a place. I want to be in a place that, that takes sin so seriously that they follow the way of Jesus because he takes sin so seriously that he turned the world upside down to search for the lost who doesn't even know they are lost. There are all kinds of people that are around us, folks, and we, we bemoan the fact, right, that, that we're losing influence in the culture. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that we're losing influence in the culture. Do you know why? Because the church does so much better when we're the underdog and we don't have power to rest upon people from the top down, but where we can follow the way of Jesus where he's talking to James and John and he says, no, the power of the cross is a power from beneath. Right? So we go looking for the people that are lost that don't even know that they're lost. You see, this is the amazing thing to me, folks, is that when we love people well in Jesus' name, when we search for them, when we care for them, when we value them as someone precious to us because they are precious to God, it shows the kingdom in a way that runs contrary to the world in which they have lived. We take sins seriously by turning the world upside down. To look for the lost that doesn't even know that they're lost. Now, Luke 15, 11 through 24, we come to the very familiar passage of the lost son. And Jesus continued, in the man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after, he had spent, uh, and after he had spent everything there, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country and sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. And then... Verse 17, when he came to his senses, 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Let's pause right there. I want to set some context here for this story because this is really, really important because this tells us that Jesus takes sin so seriously that he'll shame himself for the sake of the rebellious. This young man, this son, was a complete disaster. By, in this context, going to his father and asking for his share, which was actually one-third of the entire family estate, Now, I don't know how many of you have one-third of your net worth in liquid assets in a bank that you can go get out and write somebody a a cashier's check and give it to them. But in a culture where banks didn't really exist the way they exist today, the story was profound because Jesus is setting up a story where a man goes to his father and in uh, in an honor-shame culture goes to him and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine now. And the The father accommodates unthinkable in this context. And presumably what lays under and behind the text is he goes, he liquidates assets, he sells off pieces of property, he does everything he needs to do to give one-third of his net worth to his boy in sacks of coins and gold who promptly goes to a foreign country, leaves his father shames him publicly. Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, give me what is mine. Dad, I'm going to go make my own way. And goes off and squanders it. And then once he squanders it, it says that there was a famine that showed up in the land. Oftentimes as Americans, we miss the famine part, right? Because, I mean, let's be honest. Not many of us have missed too many. But this man finds himself in a desperate, desperate place. And when he comes to his senses, this is what he realizes. He realizes his great sin against God and his father. And he realizes the high cost package of going back to his dad. Because here's the thing. This young man has essentially said, you're no longer my family. And he should not be, culturally speaking, welcomed back as a son. He cannot be welcomed back as a son culturally until he pays back what he has owed and he suffers the penalty for his shaming of his father, which in this context would probably have something to do with what is called a kazaza ceremony, which means that quite literally you walk through the streets and you are shamed and things are thrown at you and insults are leveled at you because this son is dead to the father. And the son knows culturally, I am not worthy to be called a son any longer, but maybe, just maybe, if I go back, dad will give me a job. He'll give me a job and I can earn a little bit of money because his servants he pays And maybe, just maybe, after years and years, I'll be able to pay back dad enough to where there can be a restored relationship within the family. Maybe, just maybe, what I'm called to do is to endure this shame for the sake of restoring what I have renounced. And so the son gets up out of the pig pen, and he begins that long trek home. But the text continues. The text continues, and, and, and it says this. It says, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him, and he lifted and was filled with compassion for him. Now think about this, folks. The son was a long way off. The dad sees him. He sees him walking home. And the son, I imagine as he's headed towards town, I imagine as he's, he's anticipating all the shame that he's going to have to endure, as I imagine he is totally confronted by his sin and what he has done to his father, how he has shamed him in the community, how he has brought reproach upon the family. I'm sure he's, he's rehearsing his little speech. I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I've sinned, you know, Father, my word to be called your son, right? He's, he's rehearsing all of these things, but the father doesn't need to hear his mutterings. The father just simply sees the gate of the boy that he loves coming down the road. And the return home is repentance enough. Do you get that? Folks, sometimes I think we build these walls and we dig these moats. 
moats and we build these hedges and we think we're doing sinners a favor, but the reality is what they really need is they need a dad who loves them to see their brokenness and the courage that it would have, maybe even to walk through those back doors of somebody who's gone off into a far country, who's not just a wanderer, who's not just lost and doesn't know they're lost, but who is rebellious and knows they're rebellious. Maybe somebody showing up back in this place is just enough to allow those of us who love God and love our neighbor to pull up our gowns, the Father did, and to further shame ourselves by identifying with the shameful. You see, because this is what the Father does. It says that the Father, filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, something that he would have never done. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And what we might miss in our cultural context is this, is that by throwing his arms around him, what was the father doing in the eyes of the other on-watching villagers and hired hands and family members is that the father was shielding his son from the earned shame that his sin demanded. You see, folks, here's the thing. Quite often when we take sin seriously, we take other people's sin seriously and we don't take our sin seriously nearly enough. Because the reality is I've got all that I can handle trying to take my own sin seriously. Can I get a witness? And what Jesus is saying here is that what this father does is he runs and then he makes several announcements. The son begins and says, Father, I've sinned against you. And against heaven. And I am no longer worthy of your son. But the father cuts him off. And the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe. And put it on him. Not the robe of a servant. Not the robe of a slave. Not the robe of a hired hand. But the robe of the father. Take the ring and put it on his fingers. Bring sandals. Servants don't wear shoes. Sons wear shoes in this context. Give him the ring. The signal that this boy who essentially robbed the father of one third of his wealth and then squandered it is now able to do business in the name of the family. And bring the fatted calf and fill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead but is alive again, was lost, and is found. And so they began to celebrate. My friends, Jesus takes sin so seriously that he he presents a story that shows God shaming himself for the sake of the rebellious. But lest we beat ourselves up too much, we, we also see the story finishes. The story finishes, and we'll... We'll look at this at a, at a later date in, a, in another sermon, but, but I just wanted to give you this, this little, little bit of information. Jesus doesn't just love the rebellious. He loves those of us who are found and who stay, even when we misunderstand the love of God. You see, he takes sin so seriously that he'll leave the resurrection celebration to plead with the self-righteous. True confession, this is what you're going to get a lot of depending on what happens in the next seven days. I don't preach about what the world is doing out there and bemoan the fact that we don't live in the world we want to live in. I preach prophetically to the people of God that are called to seek the wanderer, that are called to love the lost, and that are called to embrace the rebellious. You see, the only way we change the world out there is by loving them and serving them so much that they look at us in our crazy, reckless love and say, why do you love me like this? You see, Jesus pleads, the, the Father pleads with the Son to come into the party because by welcoming sinners, by seeking wanderers, By searching for the lost, we actively celebrate the resurrection power of Jesus in the empire and establish the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you now for your love. I thank you for your mercy. And I pray right now that you would just be with us this morning, that you would continue to work in us and through us. Father, that you would would show us your love today. Help us to be, be cognizant of your will and your good grace. 
So, Father, may we, we luxuriate in your pursuant love this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue in worship by singing, and uh, also during this time, we can give our give our tithes and offerings. Um, and just as I was thinking about it, as we as we give, um, there's just so much so much to give towards. As we as Chris was talking about earlier, our fall kickoff is next week, <clears throat> and we'll be seeing in all the all the ministries that are represented here at Sunrise, both uh, small groups, Three's Company, and women's ministries in kids ministry and youth ministry and uh, the freezer meals ministry and our local and global missions i'm probably missing half of them but we have all the all the ministries that we'll be able to see here and as we give we sow into those ministries so we can reach into our church and build discipleship with among us but also reaching out into the ministry and transforming the world with god's grace and love and uh to those around us but also globally with our Christ in India, and also remember, remember Niger. So, yeah. So just think of that as we as we give today, as we give our tithes and offerings. So let's let's sing reckless love together.
from this place hear this challenge eat with more sinners especially those that commit sins that you don't commit make friends with the other not just to convert them to your way of thinking but to show them the reckless love of Jesus listen with compassion and curiosity to those who provoke you and make you uncomfortable Search the countryside for the wanderer because if we're honest, the wanderer was once us, wasn't it? Meticulously light a lamp. Get down on your hands and knees and search for the lost, even those that don't know they're lost. Run toward, not away from the rebellious. Experience and receive the matchless, pursuant love of God for yourself. Because here's the thing, my friends, no matter how seriously you take sin, God takes it more seriously and sent His Son to satisfy not just the sin problem of the world, but yours and mine as well. So to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore and the people of God said 